This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Sophie is off today. A poster in the Tri-Cities area promoting a whites-only social group for mothers and children has sparked a lot of controversy. It's not known whether the poster is part of an actual group or just a prank, but police are investigating. Travis Prasad reports. One of the posters was found on Sunday at a bus stop in Port Coquitlam. Another one was found here in the area of Coquitlam Centre Mall. The signs advertised a playdate for kids, but only some kids were invited. On the poster, whites only mom and tots is typed in bold, but even bolder is the group's mission. I mean, this isn't ignorance. Uh, this is just stupidity. Parents are asked if their kids are tired of being a minority in their schools or daycares and told to escape forced diversity and join other proud parents of European children and invest in your child's sense of well-being and racial identity. What it is, it's a warning to uh, communities of color and it also is a way of trying to foment fear and division uh, amongst communities as well. This is um, an attitude that we ne literally have never heard in our community um, uttered or seen any indication of it. So, um, you know, we're a diverse, friendly community. Port Coquitlam's mayor says this vile garbage isn't welcome in our community or anywhere else. We strive and continue to work on building the bonds of our community and breaking down barriers, promoting all the diversity our city has. The poster is drawing attention on social media. On the messaging app Telegram, some are praising the idea of a safe space for white children and suggesting meeting spots is not meant to advance a cause. It's meant to get people disgusted and, uh, well, it worked. Bylaw officers are searching for any remaining signs, but it appears residents are taking matters into their own hands and ripping them down. Even if this is someone's idea of a prank, one advocate says it can't be ignored. Well, it's not just, oh, these are some people who are gathering. This is white nationalism, and we need to be able to name it as such. We've reached out to the group for more information but have not heard back. Coquitlam RCMP are looking into whether any criminality is involved. Anyone with information about the signs is asked to call police. Travis Prasad, Global News. Homicide investigators are identifying the victim of a fatal shooting in Richmond on Sunday as Jackie Jang Jang Tran. The 29-year-old was shot during an incident on Anderson Road near Number 3 Road early on Sunday morning. Tran died on scene. I hit would like to speak to anyone who was driving or parked on Anderson Road or surrounding streets between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. that day and has dash cam video. Please contact them. Yet another business in Vancouver's Chinatown is send, sounding the alarm about rising crime and the costs of trying to keep its employees safe. It's a daily struggle running a business in some parts of the city, but as Kristen Robinson reports, it's not preventing one new business from giving it a go. While the problems facing Chinatown have been brewing for years, Stephanie Kayser says they started to percolate during the pandemic. I have a soy cappuccino. The challenges uh, in the neighborhood have, have been getting increasingly kind of tough. Delina's operations director says the coffee shop has had two break-and-enters two broken windows and a smashed front door, 
all in one month. Unfortunately, uh, above and beyond the property crime, is uh, we do deal with a lot of violence um, and aggression towards our staff. On September 2nd, Kayser says someone they'd been helping with free coffee and food for a week pulled out a knife and threatened staff when he was refused yogurt. Delina has since reinforced its window glass, added more security cameras, and a panic button. Did you ever think you'd have to install a panic button? You know, I think it's one of those things that maybe should have just been done in the beginning that just gives our staff a little more peace of mind that they can have quick contact uh, when they need. The poke place on the same block recently closed due to repeated break-ins. The BIA says Chinatown has an up to 17% vacancy rate with mostly larger spaces for rent. But the former Starbucks on Main at Kiefer has finally been leased. And caveman Shamshiri just moved into the old Goldstone Bakery, which closed in 2020. The low-carb keto restaurant is embracing the neighborhood's challenges and the beloved Hong Kong cafe's original chandelier and vinyl seats. We find that we really love the community, even though it's in an area where there is a lot of you know, activities that might not be business friendly, we still feel that if we can give back to the community, that would be a great thing. Delina still deciding whether to spend 49 grand on roll down shutters while hoping other merchants will be able to survive. Try to hold your ground, try to keep the lights on. And I believe that Chinatown has a lot to offer. And I think we're just going through a rough time and we need to come together as a community. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Our first big fall storm might signal an eventual end to our drought, but it's causing other problems right now. Windy conditions led to a string of power outages and ferry cancellations. Richard Zussman joins us now live from Victoria. And Richard, uh, forecasters say the past 24 hours is really just a taste of what's to come. The wind has died down a little bit, Chris, but the expectation, as you mentioned, is this season could be bad in terms of rain and wind. And right now, it's especially problematic. Let me show you why. You take a look at so many of the branches across Victoria and through Metro Vancouver, you can see full of leaves. When those winds pick up, it basically acts as a sail and in some cases just rips those branches right off the tree. Let me show you an example of that. So when a branch hits the ground, you can really feel how dry it is. You can get that sense of the cracking here and these leaves falling off. And all of that could be a really tough sign for what we may see over the next few weeks. Fall coming in with a punch, the first big storm of the season, cancelling ferries and knocking out power to thousands. Do you have a rather potent system just off the shore of West Vancouver Island? The first windstorm of the season, leaving about 5,800 BC Hydro customers without power across Vancouver Island. Trees more likely to topple over as they dry out, starving for water. A perfect storm for trouble. Combination of, you know, weakened trees and a prolonged period of strong winds, we can see some weaker trees come down during the storm. The high winds also leading to rocky seas and the cancellation of two round trip sailings between Swartz Bay and Tawasin. BC Ferries trips also cancelled further up the coast, including ferry to Quadra Island. We don't take the decision to cancel a sailing lightly because we know people have places to go, but it is done in the interest of safety when we do get these uh, extreme wind events. The River Forecast Centre warning island residents' water levels will start to rise, but there's no current risk for flooding. The heavy rain 
could very well provide exactly what many communities need. This hopefully will be the, the beginning of the end of the drought for uh, Vancouver Island and the South Coast. Uh, last year was an example where that didn't really happen. We, we stayed dry through much of the fall. There's no substantial rain in the forecast for the interior, a potentially dire situation for drought in the region. But that could soon change, considering this season is expected to be wetter than normal province-wide. We are looking at this active pattern continuing at least for this week. And to say that, you know, maybe in even into October, we're looking at a wetter than normal signal. And the way the rain reacts, Chris, is going to be important here. You just walk outside anywhere pretty much in this province and you'll get the same sense. You go down to the ground and you see how rock hard and dry this all is. So when the rain starts to pour, largely it's going to pool. But over time, it will start feeding the grass and the ground as we need it to because we know in these drought conditions it's been so highly problematic. So yes, the rain could cause some trouble short term, but it's a sort of long term solution we need across British Columbia. We need desperately. All right, thanks very much, Richard. That's Richard Zussman in Victoria. Now, the south coast windstorm impacted travel on one of Metro Vancouver's key bridges for at least a short time today. A large piece of airborne metal somehow got wrapped around one of the structures holding the traffic lights above the deck of the Lionsgate Bridge. It forced crews to close the span in both directions while they removed the big chunk of bent metal. Traffic is flowing once again, and so far there are no details about where that piece of metal came from. And now we'll bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon for more on the blustery weather ahead. Christy. Thanks so much, Chris. So the wind warnings have ended for much of the south coast, still in place for northern Vancouver Island central coast, but that will ease later this evening. The biggest concern for winds will be for any boaters out there. In fact, we've got a waterspout watch in effect for the west coast of Vancouver Island, and we are going to see strong winds through the Strait of Georgia. Now, it doesn't mean, though, that we, Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island, won't still see strong winds. We're going to continue to be dealing with this low-pressure centre, bringing just slightly below wind warning criteria to the south coast. So for areas near the Strait of Georgia, that means you could see gusts up to 70 kilometers an hour. For Metro Vancouver, gusts up to 50 kilometers an hour tonight through the day tomorrow. So we'll continue to deal with this one. And we've got another one on deck as we head into our Wednesday. So we've got several days of this sort of wet, windy weather on the way. Chris, back to you. All right, Christy, thanks very much. We'll check in a little bit later. Until then, it's been one week since Prime Minister Justin Trudeau dropped bombshell allegations. Agents of the Indian government were somehow involved in the June shooting death of Sikh leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar. Diplomatic relations between the two countries deteriorated badly. And as Grace Key reports, supporters of the Free Khalistan movement protested outside Indian consulates across the country today. Members of the local Sikh community burned India's flag outside the consulate office in downtown Vancouver. This comes a week after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau revealed the Indian government may be behind the murder of a Sikh separatist leader in Surrey. We are here today to demand expulsion of Indian High Commissioner Sanjay Kumar Verma, who is responsible for assassination of Nijjar on Canadian soil. Hardeep Singh Nijjar was shot and killed outside a Surrey temple in June. India has denied allegations of any involvement into his death. By murdering Hardeep Singh Nijjar, they could suppress our voices. But our voices are only going to get louder and we're only going to continue his cause even more with more energy, more activism and speaking about what's happening against us in Punjab. 
There were similar protests elsewhere in Canada. In Midtown Toronto, they spit on an effigy of the Indian Prime Minister. And in Ottawa, they gathered outside of India's High Commission. In this escalating political rift between Canada and India, both sides have expelled diplomats and travel advisories have been issued in both countries. There's been extrajudicial murders been going on, there's foreign interference from India going on. So while there has been a sense of satisfaction, there has been um, a quick turn to upset and anger that has taken this long for the Canadian government uh, to even acknowledge what we've been saying for 40 years. People here say they will continue to fight for Sikh independence and they will not be silenced with fear of retribution. Grace Key, Global News. Well, Premier David Eby and a number of his cabinet ministers are in Ottawa for two days of meetings, including a sit-down with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who might be a little distracted based on what has happened over the past few days. Keith Baldry joins us now with... More on what they hope to accomplish with all these other distractions going on. And Keith, housing is a hot topic. It is indeed. So infrastructure spending, which includes housing, the hot topic of discussions between uh, Premier David Eby and six of his cabinet ministers. This is the biggest delegation I can remember a premier taking to Ottawa to meet not only with the prime minister, but with other ministers as well. As you say, housing, probably the number one issue. Transit funding also is another hot button issue. That's why Transportation Minister Rob Fleming there is there. Also, Housing Minister Ravi Kailan. And Kailan has a very interesting and important announcement tomorrow back here in the capital region talking about housing targets that have been set for municipalities across BC. Here's the list of the municipalities who are going to be having targets. Uh, no surprise, Vancouver, the biggest of all, is part of the list. There are six in Metro Vancouver region, uh, three from the capital region, including Oak Bay, which is notoriously reluctant to get into lots of housing building, and one up in the interior in Kamloops. Again, we'll find out the targets associated with what they're supposed to hit over the next few years. Uh, tomorrow, David Eby, today, the Premier, when he met with the Prime Minister, talking about how BC has an innovative approach to uh, housing and he expects to release the details of that in the days ahead, including in his meeting with the Prime Minister. BC is, I, I am very proud to say, I think we're leading the way nationally on some of these innovative projects uh, with uh, First Nations, with local governments and uh, using public land in innovative ways. I can't wait uh, to get into detail with you about that. And also... So back to tomorrow's announcement for afternoon in Saanich here. We're talking the, uh, the target is going to total thousands of new houses and it would take various shapes. They're not all, they're actually going to be specific to how many one bedrooms, how many two bedrooms, how many three bedrooms and not in, to ensure just not a bunch of studio apartments are built. The target here is to house working families and families that are close to amenities such as shopping centers and transit hubs and such. So again, we'll get that details tomorrow afternoon. Thousands of uh, homes expected to be designated to be built in these 10 municipalities over the next five years. All right, we look forward to that coverage. It's not easy to build housing. Thanks very much, Keith. Uh, and here's more proof of how difficult it is. Victoria City Council is already considering amendments to its new missing middle housing strategy after six months with barely any uptake. Earlier this year, Council passed a sweeping new regulatory framework that allows up to six homes to be built on single-family lots. The goal was to increase the city's housing supply and create more medium-density housing options like townhomes. But a staff report says the city only received three permit applications in six months under the new rules. The report says feedback on the program suggests its regulations are far too restrictive and it recommends loosening or removing many of them. 
Counselors will review the report on Thursday. Handy Dart is a lifeline for many Metro Vancouver residents, but more and more the transportation service is being handed over to private taxi companies. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, it's impacting many who use it. For Rebecca McGear and so many others, Handy Dart is a vital resource. It provides transportation in vans and small buses for those who are older or disabled. The door-to-door -door assistance is needed for Rebecca, who has cerebral palsy and epilepsy. Yeah, I like using the Handy Dart better than taxis. A simple thing like going outside on her own without anybody there um, is not safe for her at all. Rebecca's safety is a concern for her caregivers, who say outsourcing is happening more often, resulting in taxis being sent. They didn't say hi or they didn't put the seatbelt on properly. The taxi service is not trained, in my opinion. They're not trained or nor do they understand door-to-door -door service or how to work with people with special needs. The Handy Dart bus drivers go through an intensive program. The BC Taxi Association says cab drivers are trained to assist the elderly and disabled. It's uh, an expensive and time-consuming, but we do realize that they're part and parcel of the community. Transdev manages Handy Dart for TransLink, which says there has been a huge surge in demand for the service, noting a 39% jump in trips delivered in 2022 compared to 2021. So really what that meant is since there was such a sudden surge in demand, in order to keep up, more trips needed to be supplemented out to taxis in the, in the interim. Although Transdev is working to hire more operators now at a, at a more rapid rate. The hiring of more Handy Dart drivers is good news, says Rebecca, who hopes to continue using the service for many years to come. And I've booked your Handy Dart for Arissa on Saturday. Oh, that's good. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. After months of negotiating, writers reach a tentative settlement with the big movie studios. The strike stalled the film industry in B.C. too, with Hollywood North losing millions. But the story doesn't quite have a happy ending yet. The cliffhanger still to come next on the News Hour. It was my decision, and I apologize profusely. National embarrassment. The Liberal government left reeling after the Speaker's grievous mistake coming up on the News Hour. And fuel that feeds learning. Growing calls for a national student food program a little bit later on the News Hour. Right now, though, a tentative contract deal for Hollywood writers could mean a return to the job for many B.C. film workers. The industry is a huge driver of the B.C. economy. But as Aaron MacArthur reports, another labor dispute still has to be settled before productions can fire up again. Michelle Peterson hasn't had steady work since the spring. The makeup artist, one of thousands of people who have been forced to the sidelines because of the labor dispute in Hollywood. When the Writers Guild of America walked off set, productions all over the world went dark. It's been a struggle to make ends meet. I don't believe there's been enough discussed about the impact on the people that actually make the movies, the crew members, the caterers, the production houses. There's so many people that are impacted. After five days of intense bargaining, the WGA and the major studios have come to a tentative agreement. The picket lines will come down immediately 
but words won't hit paper until the deal is ratified. Details are being kept quiet, but the key issues in the months-long strike revolved around residual pay, the size of writing staffs, and the use of AI on scripts. In BC, the film industry is worth an estimated $5 billion a year, with about 60,000 people employed directly and indirectly. While some productions have continued, the studios around town have been mostly empty. Creative BC is confident Vancouver will remain a key hub for the industry. We have the workforce, we have our tax incentives. So all of this in combination with our proximity to Los Angeles, I think probably puts us in a stronger place than maybe some other jurisdictions. So assuming the Writers Guild approves the tentative deal, productions like The Good Doctor could be back up and running in as little as two weeks. But there is a catch. American actors are still on strike. The hope is that they'll use the framework that came out of the Writers Guild agreement to base the new actors agreement on. There'll be unique issues within it, but if they can use that and hopefully you know, negotiate and come to terms within a few weeks. Most in the industry believe the writer's deal needs to be finalized first. The WGA could wrap up voting within a couple of weeks. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And according to the Vancouver Economic Commission, the city's film industry generated $4.8 billion for the local economy in 2021. The industry's growth rate averaged almost 14% a year since 2012. It was one of the fastest to recover after the pandemic. And that helped make Vancouver the third largest film and TV production center in North America. Just ahead, students getting shortchanged. And then we start getting frustrated as parents that our kid doesn't have a teacher. Three weeks into the school year, how some kids are still waiting to meet the teacher. And the flag raising at the BC Legislature, recognizing those who survived the residential school system. Good evening from Global One. We are above the Lionsgate Bridge where a stalled bus southbound has been literally pushed off the bridge deck by a truck. The backlog, however, does remain and it will be for some time. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and autoglass services and that's no accident. In Global One, I'm Brad Russell. The first month of school is coming to an end, and many B.C. students are still without a full-time teacher. A staffing shortage has meant some classes are being covered by teachers on call. And as Janet Brown reports, the situation is particularly troublesome in fast-growing districts like Coquitlam. Crossword puzzles, been doing word searches, had rotating TOCs, and one day she had three different teachers come in. Um, between helping teachers, school counselors, TOCs, no sense of routine. Okay. Danielle Plaza's grade five daughter finally has a teacher for her Port Coquitlam classroom four weeks into the new school year. It's extremely frustrating for me, my family, for other families in the community as well. The Coquitlam Teachers Association says there were roughly 650 students more at the start of the school year than expected. The second year this has happened, and they say the issue is a teacher shortage. I would like the government to take teacher recruitment more seriously. I would like them to make this profession more attractive. And he says the other big issue, what teachers are paid. Everyone can see that the cost of living here in Vancouver is, is unprecedentedly high. And so if you're starting off at 
$60,000 a year, it's pretty hard to live. The BC Teachers Federation says every part of the province is impacted by the teacher shortage and could number in the thousands. There's a few things you have to do, train more teachers. Um, you also need to make sure that the pay means that people can live where they work. Um, you have to make sure also, though, that the working conditions, that they don't burn out in three to five years from overload of their work uh, and leave the profession, which we know is happening as well. The education minister says, we are actively working to support school districts in their recruitment of certified teachers. Since 2018, we have added close to 250 new spaces in teacher education programs. For now, Danielle Plaza is just happy her daughter finally has a permanent teacher. It's a crucial time for her to learn and get those la like the last year of elementary school before transitioning into that middle school program out here. Janet Brown, Global News. Statistics have shown about one in five children are living in homes facing food insecurity, and it's become even worse since inflation started to spike. As Kylie Stanton reports, groups like Nourish Cowichan say they're struggling to meet the demand and they're calling for a nationwide school food program. 24 and 24, that's 48. Every day here is a balancing act. Finding ways to work with what they have in order to meet the demand. I'm going to need a smaller diced tomato. And nearly seven years in, it's never been higher. We are now in 21 schools, approximately 1,600 plus students. This is the ozo salad. What started out as just a breakfast program has now expanded to lunch. We might sneak a few lentils in there. Don't tell the children. Snacks, even covering off the weekend. This week there's 432. We have chili, tuna, corn. But as food prices continue to skyrocket. Three pallets just got delivered $9,000. More and more children are going hungry. And that has the Nourish Cowichan Society calling for change in the form of a national school meal program. In every school, every child, we are the only G7 country that does not have a national food program. De Silva says the program would not only put an end to the stigma associated with those accessing the assistance they so desperately need, but also take the pressure off families struggling to provide. According to BC's Child Poverty Report Card, the province's child poverty rate stands at 13.3%, with Port Alberni, Prince Rupert and Duncan seeing the highest rates of all. To put things in perspective, a low-income couple with one child would have to earn another $1,000 a month to even reach the poverty line. So I think a universal nutrition system within our school district is a, a very necessary thing and it's becoming increasingly necessary with the cost of living. The government funding that would be associated with it would mean volunteers could forget about fundraising and instead focus solely on meeting the need without ever having to worry about breaking their one and only rule. We never say no. It is what we signed up for <laughs> and we're glad to do it every single day. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Just ahead, a national scandal. I've subsequently become aware of more information which causes me to regret my decision to recognize this individual. How MPs mistakenly honored a former Nazi and the apology that followed next on the News Hour. Plus, despite a glimmer of hope in the August numbers, the incredible toll toxic drugs continue to take in BC.
Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And we're above the Burnaby Lake section of the Trans-Canada Highway at the Kensington Interchange. And this is a good news story. Traffic is starting to ease up. A bit of a slow go past the lakes, but once you get past Gallardi, you get more space and you're up to full speed. Kermac Collision, an Autoglass newest location in Vancouver, is on Southwest Marine Drive, conveniently located between Canby and Oak, the most trusted name in collision repair for 50 years. In Global One, I'm Brad Russell. The House Speaker in Ottawa is apologizing for leading a round of applause for a man who fought for Nazi Germany in the Second World War. But MPs of all stripes are raising questions about how this man was not vetted. And they're calling for Speaker Anthony Rota to step down. Global's Kyle Benning has more. A Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. It was a round of applause Anthony Rota led on Friday and is now apologizing for. I've sub subsequently become aware of more information which causes me to regret my decision to recognize this individual. During the Ukrainian president's visit to the capital, the House Speaker made note of Yaroslav Hunka in the gallery. He fought in a Ukrainian unit that was under Nazi command during the Second World War. Rota says the decision to invite Hunka, who is from his northern Ontario riding, was his alone. The speaker, speaker has uh, acknowledged his mistake uh, and has apologized, uh, but this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and by extension to all Canadians. Mr. Speaker, this is uh, a very grave incident. While the government says it was unaware of Hunka's service under the Nazis, the opposition says a quick Google search would have unveiled his background. If that basic level of vetting was not done by the government, that raises serious concerns. This comes as Jewish communities spent Monday observing Yom Kippur. On statements released this weekend, both B'nai B'rith Canada and the Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Centre for Holocaust Studies called for an apology and an explanation of how something like this was able to happen. The Bloc Quebecois and New Democrats are calling for Rhoda's resignation as he has lost their confidence. We have never had a situation where somebody who was introduced by the Speaker was not worthy of the honour of being greeted by the House of Commons. Kyle Benning, Global News. A moment of silence and reflection this morning outside the Parliament buildings in Victoria. A survivor's flag was raised at the legislature to honour Indigenous peoples forced to attend residential schools. The ceremony honored survivors, intergenerational survivors, and those who never returned home. Reconciliation and um, understanding that uh, we need to do things differently, we need to treat each other differently in this time of crisis has to become a lifestyle for all of us. We need to teach our children our grandchildren about the need to respect one another as, as equals, as partners in the path forward. Grand Chief Philip points out BC is the only jurisdiction to declare the Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People.
Today's ceremony comes days after the latest announcement about the discovery of unmarked graves at former residential schools in B.C. The Stolo Nation says at least 158 children died at residential schools in Mission, Sardis, Yale and at the Kokolitsa Hospital. And there is support for survivors. A 24-hour 24 24 crisis line is available for anyone experiencing pain or distress because of their residential school experience. You can call toll-free and speak in confidence. The number is on your screen, 1-800-721-0066. The latest statistics on deaths from toxic drugs in B.C. show some modest improvement but the B.C. Coroner Service says there is still a lot of work to be done. The Coroner Service says 174 people died from toxic drugs in August. That's the lowest monthly total since June of 2022, but it still represents more than five deaths every day. The Coroner says no one should draw any conclusions from a single month's data. The August numbers bring the total number of deaths due to toxic drugs in the first eight months of the year to more than 1,600. The coroner says smoking remains the dominant form of consumption, accounting for almost two-thirds of 2023 deaths. The coroner says that further underscores the need for spaces for people who use drugs to be able to smoke them safely. Still ahead, kicking down barriers. Snap is good. The hold is good. How Minnesotan Maya Turner just made Canadian sports history. And why Canucks fans shouldn't read too much into that 10-0 preseason loss to Calgary. Embrace the rain because we need more of it and uh, more of it is on the way. Christy's got the details now. That's right. So we're certainly not done with this system just yet. I thought I would just quickly point out the winds that we have across the region or had uh, the strongest with hurricane force winds on the northwest corner of Vancouver Island up to 152 kilometers an hour. Very strong on the west coast as well, but one of the strongest in the interior or I should say in the sort of um, uh, Strait of Georgia areas down through Saturna Island with uh, 72 kilometer an hour gusts. Now, wind warnings have ended, but we're still expecting wind gusts in through the Strait of Georgia up to 70 kilometers an hour from Metro Vancouver up to 50 and because the trees are so drought stricken there certainly is a possibility that we could still see power outages. Now this is the system it's massive big cinnamon bun shape and then spreading right across the region we have thunderstorms on the west coast of Vancouver Island that has brought that uh, water spout uh, watch which I think will continue overnight any boaters out in the water be aware of that because we certainly have the potential. Now we've got another wave of rain that's going to move on shore and that's what it's going to be like over the next little while some dry periods but then we'll see rain and that will be the case look at this tomorrow afternoon all across the south coast it picks up once again and as i mentioned we'll continue to see these strong gusts uh tonight and through the day tomorrow also so there's your uh, tuesday forecast everyone it's more like showers in the interior regions in some areas especially sort of Kamloops, for example it's just a slight chance but for the south coast especially the west coast of vancouver island rain heavy uh at times and for our region, it's more like the afternoon that we'll start to see the heavier rain. Sorry, I don't think I should have stepped in just yet. We'll step back out.
Uh, here's a look at the Metro Vancouver. Oh, right, because I get, um, there we go. Okay, so rain on and off. It's not until Friday that you have a chance of seeing a mix of sun and cloud once again. All right, here's tonight's central windows weather window, which coming is coming to you from Fernie. Amanda Green sharing this with us, reminding us that the bears are still out. Although it's fall and the fall leaves are start, starting to turn, make sure you're uh, securing all garbage and anything outside so that they're not getting into anything they shouldn't. All right, Chris, back to you. All right, they need to fatten up for hibernation, no doubt about it. Thanks very much, Christy. And Squire joins us now as we look ahead to sports. After a rough start and an injury last season, Canucks goalie Thatcher Demko says that kind of a year will make him better. I think if I can get through that, I can get through anything. So, um, yeah, I don't feel like much is going to be able to phase me. We'll look at Demko, his new backup, and Rick Tockett's idea about what you have to do to keep him from burning out. All right, look forward to that. Also, a new record that transcends sports. The Manitoba football player using her boot to beat stereotypes. You'll notice there is no pressing of any panic buttons up here on the set. Not at this time of the year. No, you do can't. not break the glass. <laughs> And ring the little emergency bell. Don't do it. Don't do it. But, but, there was a lot of angst this morning about the score in last night's Canucks-Calgary exhibition game. 10-0 for the Flames. Yes, 10-0 is embarrassing, no matter what time of year it is. But remember this, 2008, the Detroit Lions of the NFL went 4-0 in the preseason. In the regular season, when the games mattered, they went 0-16. The moral of the story, preseason doesn't tell you anything about your favorite team. Exhibition games will tell you about individuals trying to make the team, but that's it. And remember, last night the Calgary Flames played a lot of their main guys. The Canucks brought Abbotsford with them and some players who likely won't even play in Abbotsford. This is what happens when an NHL team plays a minor league team. That's what you saw last night. And it was Archer's Shilovs who uh, led in most of those 10 goals, seven to be exact. Now, he could very likely be the main goalie in Abbotsford this year. Well, in Vancouver, of course, the main man will be Thatcher Demko. When he's on his game, the Canucks are a much different team. Now, that could be said for any team. If your goalie's playing well, you're going to play well. But as Jim Rutherford said, Vancouver could have a good year, depending on. We have a playoff team if everything goes right. And what has to go right the most is this man. The Canucks found out last season it doesn't matter if Elias Pettersson scores over 100 points or Andre Kuzmenko gets 39 goals or Quinn Hughes continues to ascend into the top echelons of NHL blue liners. If Thatcher Demko was hurt, or off his game as he was at the start of last season, the Canucks are not going to win as many games. But the good news is, Demko believes last year was just a pothole. That's how I looked at it. You know, I had a bad 12 games in, in my career, and um, it ended up with me having a ser serious injury that I worked through and I learned a lot through, and I came back and I was myself again at the end of the year. You know, I don't feel any less confident after a year like last year. I think everyone goes through something like that, and some guys can fold and some guys can learn from it and, and continue on. Demko's injury last season also taught Canucks management a lesson. The backup goalie cannot be someone who hasn't truly outgrown the American Hockey League. Vancouver wanted a bona fide NHLer to be the number two guy this year. 
That's why they brought in Casey DeSmith. He's played 134 games in Pittsburgh, and he has had to be the number one guy in emergency situations. It's important to embrace it when it happens. I had a little bit of that last year. With, you know, Jars had some injuries problems, so uh, I had to do that a little, a little bit last year and had some success with it too. So uh, I always enjoy it when it happens, but obviously, you know, I prefer when everybody's healthy, as does the team. But not just healthy. The team also doesn't want Demko fatigued. He's going to get the bulk of the games, and Rick Tockett has an idea to help alleviate some of the pressure on him by having a third goalie just for practices. We want Denver to have a, a light load. Say he comes in, we only want him for 15 minutes. We can get that goalie, whoever it is, to come out there and, so I don't have to alter my practice. Usually it sucks, right? You know, you, sometimes you have to alter your practice, you know, it, or, the, or, the, or the starter feels bad leaving the net. But practice goalie or no practice goalie, Thatcher Demko believes he can handle all the work the Canucks want to give him this season. You know, coming back from what I went through at the beginning of the year and then the injury and then playing the way I did at the end of the year, I think if I can get through that, I can get through anything. So, um, yeah, I don't feel like much is going to be able to phase me. Good news for the BC Lions. All-star receiver Dominic Rimes, his knee feels better. He'll play this Friday against Saskatchewan. Yes, I am. I'm back. Uh, been resting, been getting my body right. You know, I was banged up to start the season off, trying to push through it, and, you know, just wasn't myself. So, you know, had to, you know, recovery, um, get my body back right, and I'm, I'm back to my old ways. I remember talking to him in my office, and we were talking about some short-term pain for some long-term gain, and I said the best scenario for the BC Lions is that you're healthy and ready to go for the home stretch, and... Um, you know, we're hoping it pays off for us. The Seahawks win over Carolina yesterday it was another case of Lumen Field providing a true home field advantage. A loud crowd disrupted the Panthers' offense, and Pete Carroll said the fans, or the 12s, of course, were a big part of the victory. One of the most obvious things uh, that we that happened today was feeling the 12s. God, dog, what a great, what a great impact they had on this game. Had, these guys had eight false starts in this game. False start. Offense number 79, five-yard penalty, first down. That was a thrill. It was a thrill for our young guys who hadn't, hadn't heard it like that, hadn't felt it like that. And they understand why we talk so much about it and why it's such a factor in, in all of that. So anyway, uh, really, we got to give a lot of credit to our fans being part of this game. Just like they've been in the past, that was really obvious today. So if you ever go down there to see a Seahawks game, <laughs> be prepared to yell and clap all game long because you're in the game. It can be overwhelming for yeah. sure, especially for opposing offenses. All right, just ahead, the kick that rewrote Canadian record books. Next. Jordan Armstrong is standing by with a preview of what's coming up tonight on Global News at 11. Jordan. Chris, outraged tonight that another pedestrian has been hit at a crosswalk the city of Vancouver knows is dangerous. It knows this because neighbors have been complaining for years, and many months ago the city actually started the physical work to install a crossing signal at 4th and Waterloo. They put up new poles and extended the curb, but they still haven't put in a signal. In the meantime, another person, a 35-year-old woman, gets hit by a vehicle. We go looking for answers tonight on Global News at 11. Chris? All right, thanks for that, Jordan. Now, a kicker for the University of Manitoba Bisons made history over the weekend, becoming the first woman ever to score points in Canadian university football. Global's Catherine Dornian has more on Maya Turner's barrier-busting achievement. 
Snap is good. The hold is good. Maya Turner has just made history. It was their homecoming game and a must win for the Bisons when Maya Turner became the first woman in U Sports football to score in a regular season game. In the moments before, viewers, we are about to witness history. She and everyone in the stadium felt the gravity of what was about to happen. I definitely did feel a bit of pressure, you know, just with the eyes watching, um, just to see if I would make my first field goal. You can see it on the broadcast cam, everybody giving her some love out there. The field goal earned her cheers from Regina fans as well as her own. Later on, when the game was tied in overtime, it's Maya Turner into this football game. She kicked another, securing victory for the Bisons. It's up, and it is good, no doubt about it. She went out there and friggin' nailed it and kicked the game-winning field goal. Head coach Brian Doby says it was an important moment to shut down any doubt about a woman playing on a men's team. She needed to prove to herself and she needed to prove to naysayers that, yeah, I'm, I'm for real. Turner, who's from Maple Grove, Minnesota, was recruited back in spring of last year, and this was her first time suiting up for a game. From the first time he saw her play, Doby was impressed with her accuracy and professionalism. There was about 14 guys on that field that day. She won those guys over that day. Came off the field, came into my office, met with her and her parents, and, and she committed. We signed her right then and there. Both Doby and Turner say the entire team has her back. Everyone here is just so supportive of me and appreciates me for the player I am and the athlete I am and, um, you know, just treats me like any anyone else on the team. You can do the honors. Who so one, and her coach is hopeful Turner's achievements will open the door for more women to suit up on university football teams. Catherine Dornian, Global News. Great story and congratulations, Maya. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Yes, and also uh, Division Three football in the States this past weekend, a woman played a defensive back position. That's right, she was a safety. Yes. Rush the quarterback, too. Uh, also, Love on the topic it. of uh, exceptional women, happy birthday to Jane Kerrigan Galis, just because I won't be here tomorrow. Happy birthday. Happy Love birthday, you, Jane. Okay. Bye, guys. Thanks for watching.